From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Natasha Lance Rogoff is my guest. She's an award-winning television producer who's written and directed documentaries and produced children's television shows for well over 25 years. Natasha Lance Rogoff brought Sesame Street to Russia in the 1990s and has written a fascinating book about the experience. Uh, you might think that bringing a children's educational show to another country would simply be a matter of translation and a little tweaking for cultural differences and not involve murder and kidnapping and the smuggling of cash in one's underwear. But all of that and more happened in Natasha Lance Rogoff's book, Muppets in Moscow, the crazy, unexpected true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Natasha Lance Rogoff, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I should mention the the kidnapping was the kidnapping of a Tickle Me Elmo doll, but everything else occurs. Not a Tickle Me Elmo, but a large, full-size Elmo. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nevertheless, you were yeah, the, the office was overrun by armed uh, soldiers or something, yeah? Yeah, he was, uh, he was our mascot, Elmo, and uh, office mascot, and uh, that was a absolutely horrendous day when uh you know we had been in production for several months and uh the whole office was taken over because uh, uh a group of um russian uh uh i guess media moguls wanted to uh control the television station and so they took over the whole 11th floor and then put all of our equipment, everything was sealed inside the office. They put a lock on it with wax so you couldn't break it. And we never saw all those scripts or, um, uh, you know, set designs. Uh, everything was shut away. But my, uh, it was a terrifying experience for my colleagues uh, who were there. I was not there at the time. I was in, I had just gotten married. Actually, it was two days after my wedding. That was the call I received, but yeah. So that interrupted your honeymoon. It's 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 interesting how all of this uh, stuff that happens in the book, and then there's all these things that are happening in your own personal life. How did you decide when you were writing the book which parts of your personal life to include in the story? That was the hardest part of writing this book because you know, as a documentarian, so I had done, you know, made uh, documentaries in what was then the Soviet Union for, you know, a decade, and had uh, was a journalist. So I was used to really not putting myself in the story at all. You know, the idea was to be as objective and unbiased as possible, and not share personal information. Um, That's very different today with the way documentaries are made. Um, but when I was doing it, that was, a you know, considered not the best way to make a, a, a film. And with this one, you know, I really felt like it was important for the book to be focused on my colleagues and the people that I worked with, um, because this was about their country and the change that they were trying to bring to their country uh, by collaborating with us, you know, the Americans who were working there um, in order to create a show that would be totally unique and uniquely reflect their culture and their society. So 
you know, I didn't want to, I didn't think, I also thought that this was a remarkable story uh, during an unprecedented period uh, in history after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And, you know, just as uh, uh, Soviet citizens were trying to emerge from, you know, the darkness of 70 years of communism and the idea that the Muppets could come to Russia and, um, you know, offer uh, a mo- you know the the opportunity to model idealistic values, and the puppets would be unique to their folklore. The design would reflect their culture. So I I I really thought that's a much more unique story than my personal life, and I didn't really think that this memoir would be. I'm like, wh- why would I write a memoir about myself and my life? Um, unless it was like, um, you know, John McPhee and it was going to be, you know, about something, you know, random and wonderfully, uh, you know, abstract, but this, the story that actually happened, I felt like I had to tell and I knew it was going to be, um, that people would find it fascinating because, I had been telling friends and family, you know, this story for years. Um, and they it's unbelievable what happened. I mean, that that, you know, we were able to uh operate in uh post-Soviet Russia and you know, create something uh beautiful out of that that then, you know, impacted the lives of millions of Russian children for the next 10 years, you know, well into Putin's era. I mean, this was this was not supposed to succeed. And, it, you know, it, as you see in the book, I think we're going to fail practically every week. Um, and so, uh, you know, with people getting assassinated, as you said, the office getting taken over by, you know, soldiers with AK-47s, um, our Russian broadcast partners uh, getting, a, you know, um, uh, killed, our sponsors being blown up in a car. And that's, you know, not even to begin talking about the cultural clashes uh, between the Americans and the uh, Moscow creative team about all kinds of issues and and questions about equality, gender rights, uh, um, inclusivity, you know, all these ideas that um their new the new society was grappling with as they shifted from the ideology of communism well um you know one of the the criticisms that the world has of america is that we force our culture on the world i mean i remember the first time i went to australia which was in 1999 and i was like oh i'm going as far as i've ever been i'm going to be in the other side of the world and I get off the plane and there's Burger King and pizza hut. And um, so, you know, Victoria's secret and, and McDonald's and all that um, Sesame street's values, you know, might not be embraced throughout the world. I mean, is, is that argument reasonable and how does Sesame street, you know, fit into that discussion? Well, there was some opposition to uh, the creation of a Russian Sesame street in um post post uh, communist russia but it was extremely limited 
Um, you know, just as you said, there were a couple of articles in the press where people were writing about, you know, uh, what Americans want is to, you know, control our children's mind and poison them with the Muppets. <laughs> you know, I, I still have copies of some of these, which, you know, were like uh, unbelievable to read. Uh, but that was actually not the case at all with um, the approach that we used in creating Sesame Street. We weren't like um, uh, American uh, television companies that were importing U.S. shows. Um, we were there to work with uh, Russian um, uh, writers, puppeteers, set designers, um, producers, and um, and animators to design a show that was going to suit them. That would focus on content that would that they felt their children needed at that time it wasn't an import per se but um we also worked with education experts who came from all over the former soviet union and in the book there is a scene inside the danilov monastery which is the headquarters of the russian um orthodox church where we have these very intense discussions about what they want the show to focus on. And while this is all going on, you know, the there was an attack by a group of uh, uh, Chechens um, on a Russian town. It was one of the first attacks um, where, you know, uh, communities that had, according to the Russians, considered themselves brother were now brothers were now taking up arms against each other. So all of this was going on, you know, while we were, having these discussions about what this show would um, be like for uh, uh, new um, post-Soviet Union. But we were, you know, we operated in a way that was so much more sensitive than a lot of TV companies because it wouldn't help the country if we just imported the show without adapting it to uh, Russian culture. And the the show was so successful, ultimately, I believe it's a result of the approach that Sesame Street uses in all its international co-productions. I visited the Soviet Union in 1972, and, and I collected a lot of things, oh, really? including toys. And the toys were all wood, interesting and fun. They were all made of wood, and they all showed people working like little bears hammering a nail into a tree or, you know, <laughs> every toy had a, a worker's uh, a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, Slava, Potri- <laughs> Slava what is it? The, the proletariat, you know, glory to the proletariat. There, there were no Barbie dolls or anything like that. Well, that's kind of a good thing. Um, yeah. no, I, 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 I don't know. Many, many, uh, Many people like Barbie dolls, but anyway, the um, yeah, the 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 toys in Russia at that time were so beautiful because they were um, hand painted wood. I mean, they had they had little worker bears, but they also had carousels and you know all kinds of. St- I have a bunch here upstairs. I mean, they're so beautiful. Um, of course, I at the time I I thought a lot about uh, lead paint. <laughs> wondered 
because there wouldn't have been, uh, you know, the same regulations sure. uh, that we had in the U.S. at the times, you know, that were instituted. So I did think about that with young children. And um, uh, there were, you know, anyway, they were unbelievably beautiful, but very, uh, you know, most of the art and culture was that was created uh, was supposed to have a purpose, including rock, including music. So, you know. Uh, when I had been there earlier doing uh, writing about the underground rock movement, many of those musicians were uh, persecuted under communism and they didn't have the right to record their music or sell their music. Um, and of course the state owned the means of production. So all the studios were state owned and, you know, that, that has a huge impact on, you know, your ability to express yourself. So, that was the same with many aspects of culture in uh, societies that are, uh, you know, where culture and art is um, under the thumb of ideology. Well, it, I think in any good film or television production, you've got the the meeting of art and commerce because you uh, you want it to be artistic and you want people to pay to see it so that you can continue to make more. Art. Well, they weren't they weren't going to pay to see it exactly because it was distributed across 11 time zones on Russia's largest TV station for free. So people yeah. there was there wasn't any like at that time, there was no subscription cable. Uh, but advertisers would be paying advertisers. Yes. Mm -hmm. So but but in addition to the meeting of art and commerce with Sesame Street, you have curriculum. So it's like another layer of of stuff that is. In, like those little bears have their little purpose of hammering that nail into the tree. Um, Sesame Street is supposed to teach kids how to read, and it does teach kids how to read, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a powerful tool. Um, and, uh, you know, in the case of the of Ulitsa Sazam, which means Sesame Street in Russian, in the case of that TV series, um, the Russian children were, uh, the Russians felt, way more advanced than our own children at a young age. And um, they did not need that much help with uh, teaching letters and numbers, but they did need uh, guidance and some, uh, I would say, um, understanding of how to write very short um, pieces that were funny, but also had an educational uh, goal within them that would teach social emotional aspects of life and, you know, things like uh, tolerance and kindness. Um, you know, the whole discussion around civility and kindness was fascinating. And I write about this quite a bit in the book, how the, um, the communist system had changed language in the context of today, it's so fascinating because we're having all these discussions around uh, gender, uh, gender identity and the shifting of language. And at that time in the 1990s in um, in Moscow, the the debates around these questions were um, utterly riveting. So they had no word for uh, Mr. and Mrs. because it was eliminated under communism and people would call each other tovarish which means comrade and the idea was that 
you wouldn't, the Tovarish would not reveal anything about your marital status, your class, uh, your, you know, your social status. Um, and so now that communism was no more, people were not going to use comrade anymore. But there were, but the old language, oh, the Russian language from 70 years earlier also sounded kind of odd. So, so, yeah. so what did they call? I mean, it is kind of, it's always kind of puzzled me that in English we have Miss and Mrs., but we just have Mr. So you, you, it's only women who's right. married. You, you have the, the, it is just a mystery whether he's married or not married or, but I suppose that's what, you know, they're. That's what they want. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> You're bad. <laughs> yeah, um. You know the events that happened in this book happened 25 years ago. Why? Why did you wait until now to write your book? I had um, I had uh, wanted to write this book for you know almost 30 years, and um, I knew it was a great story. And when my when uh, relations started to deteriorate you know between russia and the west and this was happening even before 2014 when russia invaded ukraine and i started seeing that all of these tv shows on netflix and amazon you know every russian was a criminal a thug a prostitute and it just didn't ring true to the uh to the Russians, the artists that I had worked with who were, you know, incredible people, uh, warm, passionate, uh, artistically brilliant. So I felt like I, I, it was really important to tell that story so that uh, people in the West could understand more about the culture, that it wasn't just Putin's Russia. But it was a huge country, you know, it, it used to cover one seventh the world's surface, now much smaller, but still, you know, a remarkable group of people that had made such incredible contributions to the world in terms of the arts. And I felt like this was a story that we could celebrate at a time when things were uh, increasingly becoming more terrifying all to the point of now discussing, you know, the prospect of nuclear war again, as a, this really might happen tomorrow, you know. Um, so I, I really wanted to, to share that with people. Um, and also, I had videotapes and um, memos from this time, you know, a stack like, like this. And uh, audio recordings. And I just felt like, you know, I carried all this stuff around with me for 30 years. My my husband wasn't very happy about all the boxes, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I knew I had the, the ability to recreate events in a way that was highly unusual for a nonfiction book from that long ago. Um. So that's that's kind of what made me do it. And I felt like I had to do it. You know, it, it was like COVID hit and I couldn't do any filming. And I'd wanted to do this. I had tried to do this many years before. I had an early draft, which I completed after right after the show aired. 
And that helped me immensely because obviously I had that to go back to and work from, uh, which had a, a lot of details that I didn't even remember now, you know, in, in my age <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. So this book, another great byproduct of COVID. <laughs> COVID baby. Um, well, uh, we're talking with Natasha Lance Rogoff and I'm Gary Shapiro. This is from the bookshelf. And she's just written a book called Muppets in Moscow, the crazy unexpected true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. How were you chosen to be the one to bring Sesame Street to Russia? Completely randomly, I think. I mean, I had I was a documentary filmmaker, as I said, so I was screening a film uh, which I had just completed. Uh, and it was about the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And this film, uh, I finished it uh, right as the Soviet Union was falling apart. And the film actually predicted the coup of 1991 that led to the fall of the Soviet empire. But when I made the film, I was off by three weeks because I was sure Russians would not give up their vacation time in August to have a coup. So I thought <laughs> the coup was going to be in September. But I um, I got contacted by ABC News' uh, Ted Koppel show, and I was on the air that night with my film, The Night of the Coup. And I guess Gary Nell, who was then um, uh, uh, the C- COO of Sesame Street, uh, which was called Children's Television Workshop then, he came to the screening of my film and afterwards uh, came up to me and said, you know, we're trying to bring Sesame Street to Russia. Would you help us? And I said to him, did you just watch my film where I embedded with uh, right wing fascists and, um, you know, the whole film was about entrepreneurs who were put in prison. I mean, it was the, it was it was not it was like it's pretty dark. So as far from the Muppets as you could be. <laughs> And he said, uh, he said, oh, come on, uh, you know, no one can say no to Elmo. Why don't you um, come down to the office, come down to the headquarters, Sesame Street headquarters, let's talk. And uh, he was very persuasive, as was his colleague, Steve Miller. And um, I said, yes. So that was a, that was an incredible journey that, you know, changed the course of my life. Uh, because it was such a different shift from what I had been doing before. And I had no experience producing children's television before. Had you even been familiar? I mean, I know that, I mean, I'm vaguely familiar with Sesame Street, but I didn't grow up with it. I was already, I don't know, 14 or Like you, I was, I did not grow up with Sesame Street. I was too old. And, um, uh, but of course I knew the show. I loved the humor. I mean, it was like, nothing I'd ever seen. Um, so sophisticated, witty, and, you know, the puppets were incredibly fresh, uh, original. Um, so yeah, I loved it, but I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't like the kinds of people who would gravitate towards children's television that are more earnest in a way. I mean, I was more, uh, I had just always covered politics and economics and, you know, hard, hard news stuff. Um, or, you know, underground culture, but it was always related to injustices. So finding the connection between making Sesame Street in Russia and, you know, f- 
finding in my heart how it fit was an interesting uh, journey for me as well. It wasn't very hard, let me tell you, because obviously Sesame Street is, you know, doing incredible things around the world. And it, it was then and it is now. And so it, I was just not very familiar with the fact that they had international co-productions in many locations, although they had not, none in a place that was as difficult to make a show as in Russia at that time. And so I was saying earlier that it wasn't just a matter of taking Sesame Street and dubbing it into Russian, that you had to really remake all of the characters into characters that Russians would identify with and the music. Um, in the book, you talk about how all of the music that they came up with were these sad Russian songs about death and so forth, <laughs> rather than a happy, um, you know, counting song. That was the auditions, actually, but we um we uh, when we we were just getting ready to audition the children for the show and um we had a couple hundred uh you know children with mostly their mothers who showed up to for the casting session it was like a 3 day session and i was so excited for this because i had been waiting for months and this is like one of my favorite parts i had actually worked on the mexican Sesame Street series as the producer before the Russian series because it mm. took that long to raise the financing for the Russian series. So while you were waiting to do Russia, partner, you set it up in Mexico. I went to Mexico. And so mm. I had already seen some uh, auditions and, you know, just hearing the kids singing and these little soprano voices. And it's it's such a fun, fun part of the production process. So that's what I was expecting to hear. Um, and then the first uh, child comes in who's a little boy and he's like wearing these short pants uh, and he, he stands up straight and starts singing a song from uh, Belaruski Vagzal, which is a film. And his voice drops several octaves and then he sings this song, you know, the planet is burning, <laughs> covered in smoke. The losses are cannot be counted. You know, and I'm just sitting here like, oh my God, okay, this is a World War II song. Uh, that's pretty strange for a audition for a comedy show, children's comedy <laughs> show. So I I sit there, I like, okay, that's strange. Let's chalk it up to that. And then the next little girl comes in and she sings this song called Katusha, which is about a uh, a, a young woman uh, bidding her lover uh, farewell as he marches off to the front. <laughs> and it goes on from there. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that I'm listening to these songs. This is so strange, you know. So at lunchtime, I asked the the chief director, I'm like, Velodya Gramatikova, I'm like, uh, what's what's going on here? Like, why aren't there like more upbeat songs like Itsy Bitsy Spider or Old MacDonald Had a Farm? And he just looks at me and he says, uh, uh, he looks at me like he's very confused. And he goes, Natasha, these songs aren't aren't sad. Uh, <laughs> these songs make children feel comfortable. These are the songs they sang with their grandparents. They they give them comfort. You shouldn't think of them as as morose. <laughs> And then I'm just sitting here. I can, he can see, I'm, I really don't know how to 
answer because I'm terrified that this means that these this type of uh, music is what he envisions for the series. And there had been other other issues that I talk about in the book related to music before that. So this was on top of already massive disagreements about various aspects of the show. Um, and he said, you know, uh, our children, uh, they understand sadness. They read about sadness uh, in poetry and they expect sadness in their uh, poetry, in their music and in their lives. What a lovely thought. Well, and but- I, but, you know, I, I mean, I have to say for, from an American point of view, you know, which is always, you know, forced smiles and, you know, everything's fine, you know, yeah. you know, great. Or even in Britain, jolly good, you know, and um, it was a, just a very different cultural aspect. And at that point, um, the the chief director wanted to create these uh, um, short segments where the let motif of the of the music would be these sad songs or what what he's calling lyrical songs. Mm. So he referred to them. And I I said, OK, go ahead. You know, so he went and he made these um, short segments and the book goes on to explain what happened after that, but I won't, I won't reveal what happened, but let's just say that, um, uh, it involved, uh, a child, um, shooting another child with a fake pistol, but (laughs) I have to read about it in the book. Um, some of the, um, the characters that we associate with Sesame street were not uh, you didn't bring them. There, there was no Big Bird. Uh, Kermit wasn't a part of it, or or was it? Yes, you know? no, that's right. I mean, forty percent of the show was dubbed. These were some animated segments, some standalone Muppet segments without actors, you know, American actors in them, just the Muppets, and some live action uh, short films. Um, otherwise there were no studio segments. So no neighborhood, there's no American neighborhood imported into Russia or anything. So we created, uh, three new Muppets that were, um, their origin stories relate to, uh, Russian folklore characters. And, um, one is Zeliboba is the, uh, full body puppet. Who's a little bit taller than big bird. And his um, his story is that he emerged from the idea of Domovoy, which is a character in folklore uh, who's usually depicted as an old man with like fiery eyes, and he protects the hearth in the home. Uh, and he is at one with nature. So this character, through a series of uh, months and developments, uh, evolved into being Zeliboba, who, who was a... Uh, a blue character who has tufts of um, fur and leaves and grass and twigs sewn into his coat where it's uh, mostly organza fabric. And that character, you know, became hugely successful, you know, as successful as Big Bird. Big Bird does not usually appear in any of the international co-productions and nor does Kermit. Um, And, there are two other puppets that we created for the um, uh, series for Ulitsa Sazam. And then an entire new uh, neighborhood was created, which reflected 
ultimately aspects of pre-revolutionary Russia, Soviet Russia, and uh, what they considered where they were going in the future. Well, um, one of the stories that I think um, typifies the cultural differences, tell the story about wanting to put leaves on the set, on the floor. That was a, that was funny. Yeah, no, I um, I we were uh, shooting inside uh, Russia's largest television station. So this is called ORT, and um, I think it was a six hundred square meter set. And um, as the set was was already built, and we were uh, someone had uh, had um, put leaves. Um, on the the set in order to create sort of a make the the floor was was kind of a um a a rubber floor and in order to make it look naturalistic like it was outdoors um i asked one of the um uh production assistants to put leaves down and then i came back uh like an hour or two later and all the leaves were gone <laughs> So I was like, where'd the leaves go? We just put them down. And the woman who was responsible for, for, you know, set uh, stuff was like, well, you don't want people to think that, that we're untidy. I cleaned up all the leaves. (laughs) And so eventually I had to go get the set designer and say, look, can you, you know, can you permanently? (laughs) um, But anyway, there were lots of, discussions about various things including the color of the the um that the color that the set was painted one of the houses which was kind of a muted uh um muted paint to show aging for you know uh, a dacha which is a country house and you know one of the people said came in and said uh you don't want it to be that muted you know that looks that looks uh unkempt and dirty you know we have to has to be spanking new, you know? So there were, there were a lot of sensitivities around all of these questions of design aesthetics. They were a society that was uh, also dealing with the humiliation of having their country implode. And suddenly uh, all these parts of the country were declaring independence like Ukraine and Georgia and Armenia. And for a lot of people, this was a, you know, for the Soviet citizens, this was a very difficult time. Um, and it was also difficult economically. Uh, there were hardships in terms of food and health care. Um, and nobody knew where the country was going to go. Uh, it was enormous instability, instability, uncertainty, you know, especially for, for people with young children. Did you encounter anti-Semitism in your work there? I had one one incident that happened. I mean, most of the time, no. Uh, our team was uh, extremely um, multi-ethnic, multinational. I mean, we had, as I said, Russians, Ukrainians, Georgians, Armenians. Everybody was working together um, in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, until quite late, uh, until the late nineteen eighties, I think. Um, the word Jew was stamped in in a Soviet passport and uh, Jewish was considered a nationality. So um, for uh, for our uh, team, we had many members who were Jewish and um, we had a number of people in key positions who were Jewish too. Uh, 
including my closest partner, who's uh, Leonid Zagalski, who is described in the book quite extensively. Um, <laughs> and um, he was a, a quite well-known um, journalist who covered the first story. He broke the story about political prisoners who were kept in psychiatric hospitals. But in the book, I write about one incident that happened, which was uh, very difficult for me to navigate, um, considering that you know, the values that we were, the show hopefully was bringing to uh, post-Soviet Russia, then to have this happen, you know, with our group, uh, with our team was, did not make me happy. Um, But in general, it was a, the camaraderie among our team and respect for one another was, you know, very high. You mentioned the uh, the controversy about the colors that you use to paint the set. And there was some discussion about how certain, I mean, every color that you suggested had some meaning that you had no idea that this color would have this meaning there. Um, that, oh, you can't have him wearing blue. That means he's gay or something like that. Uh, although, you know, in America, they had the whole tinky winky uh, scandal. On the, the oh, you mean the Teletubbies? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Oh, yeah. Or- yeah, the Teletubbies, they were yeah. saying at the time, they were saying, oh, well, Tinky Winky is gay because he's wearing Yeah, because he carries a purse or something, right? Yeah. Or, I don't know what it was. Yeah. Really thing. But there um, was some of that there, too, in Russia. There was definitely, I mean, what what, what made the uh, this production uh, just incredibly satisfying was <laughs> and difficult was also the abstraction to which the Russians had to go to make every decision. And so this decision about what color the Muppets, the uh, Slavic Muppets should be, uh, required that they consult the uh, writings of a uh, famous artist, uh, Vasily Kandinsky, who had been dead for almost 100 years. Um, And he had written this book called The Theory of Color, something like that, which analyzes what emotions are related to which colors. So, for instance, yellow, you know, causes madness. So <laughs> brought up the idea of, well, okay, you know, Big Bird is yellow. They were like, oh, no, 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 our, our Muppets can't be yellow. <laughs> you know, but some of these discussions were, they were so Russian. I was like, okay, we're going to, uh, I was just like having a blast listening to this <laughs> stuff. But hey, they they eventually picked fabulous colors, and whatever process they needed to 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 get to use to get there, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, when 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 were you last in Russia? Are you still connected? Do you feel connected to Russia still? Oh, I definitely feel connected. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, heartbreaking to see what's going on there now. Just you know, I can't uh, believe that where we are today and where we were 30 years ago. Um, And I am very much in touch with my colleagues. The last time I was there was January, 2020, when Mm -hmm. I went back to interview um, former colleagues for the book. And then in after uh, uh, Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine, I stayed in touch with many of them, and once uh, they were they were actively opposing the war, uh, also protesting, and they many of them were on social media. And then once uh, Putin passed a law against speaking out against the war, um, they uh, many of them had to leave right away, like within twenty four hours, and get out because their 
they had a footprint on social media of what they'd been saying. Mm-hmm. And that was, can you imagine? I mean, you have to leave your mother, you have to leave, you know, your elderly mother. And uh, they were, they are now many of them in different, different places in uh, Tbilisi, uh, Yerevan, Germany, all over the place. Um, and those people who couldn't leave, I'm still in touch with them on WhatsApp, but of course, very careful about what I say. And, um, you know, there isn't a discussion uh, about, you know, what I know they'd like to say, which is how horrible to see their own country uh, causing such devastation in Ukraine. Uh, these are people, they, they, many of them have relatives who, you know, still live in Ukraine. Uh, some of them are Ukrainian and they live in Russia and, you know, they're watching what's happening to their relatives. So it's been a, a really uh, sad, sad time to see all of this. Um, but, um, I mean, but is I, it feeling like, is it feeling closer to Soviet times there now? Well, when I was there in the, in the, in, in 2020, it was already feeling like that. Yeah. It felt like the the early 1980s when I was there as a student. What do you think will happen? Well, I don't have any, uh, you know, special information because I'm not there. I don't have any boots on the ground. I mean, it's a very different way of looking at events than 1991 when I was actually there. Um, so it's very hard to predict, uh, but you know i i guess my uh my very uh sad uh prediction is that it'll be a protracted war um but this is you know uh it's just i don't know i don't know what to say except that um i do i do i am proud to know that you know, a lot of the men that are, it's over a million Russians that have left uh, Russia because they don't want to fight young people in their 20s and 30s. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know they grew up on Ulitsis's arm. Our show was, you know, that much of a hit. And I feel the same way about the young people fighting in Ukraine, that they're also part of the Sesame Street generation and the values that our show uh, embraced and um shared with millions of children i believe had an impact and i hope ultimately um you know there's a way to find you know that well the war will end so i think at some point i mean all wars end this war will end and i do hope that we'll be able to go back at some point and um start the show again well it's a it's a wonderful wonderful book natasha lance rogoff the book is called muppets in moscow the unexpected crazy true story of making sesame street in russia and i'm so glad you wrote it i'm so glad i read it and and thank you for being with us on from the bookshelf to talk about it thank you so much for doing this it was a pleasure meeting you and talking with you natasha lance rogoff her new book is called muppets in moscow the unexpected crazy true story of making sesame street in russia I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Ty Burr joins us now. Ty Burr is a film critic. He was at the Boston Globe for many years. He was a senior editor at Entertainment Weekly for years when that magazine was great. 
And he's written several books, including The Best Old Movies for Families, A Guide to, to Watching Together, and The 50 Movie Starter Kit, What You Need to Know If You Want to Know What You're Talking About. And he currently writes a film and popular culture newsletter, Ty Burr's Watch List on Substack. I love Substack, and I'm happy to get your newsletter every week. Thank you. Um, so uh, what uh, what have you been watching lately? Uh, well, I'm gearing up to go to um, Sundance, to Park City uh, on Thursday. So I have been boning up on what's on uh, uh what's available there and as always it's going to be, this is the first time i've been back to park city in three years so i'm excited about that well, do you um, feel comfortable uh tiber do you feel comfortable going into movie theaters with other people i do but i mask um yeah. at this point i still mask uh and and i feel comfortable doing doing that so um and i understand if other people don't want to but it, it works for me i don't have a problem with it yeah. So that'll all be all new movies then at Sundance, of course. That is correct. That is correct. I mean, uh, as far as uh, what's out there currently, I've been patching up on my 2022 movies. Uh, look, for instance, last week I wrote up this movie called St. Omer, um, which is by a French Senegalese director named Alice Diop. Um, it's her, she's a documentarian, but it's her first fiction film um, based on a real case. Absolutely fascinating, moving drama uh, about a court case involving a woman who murdered her 15 year, uh, left her 15 month old child to die, basically murdered her child. Um, and it really gets into a lot of layers of human experience. It's a fascinating film. It's, and it's in theaters now. In my newsletter, I'm trying to balance what's in theaters with what's on demand because I understand a lot of people are not going to theaters or there's a lot of stuff that's on demand that's not in theaters. So I'm trying to guide people to the good stuff there. Yeah. No, I haven't really gone back to the theater much. I mean, a couple of times and only when I know there's nobody else mm -hmm. in, in the theater. But I mean, I love old movies. In fact, my my friend, John McKinley, who's a children's book illustrator, said that Gary likes old movies so much that he bought a 60-inch plasma black and white TV. And I hope you have motion smoothing turned off. Oh, gosh. Isn't it terrible, the new televisions, when you watch a movie and it doesn't look like it's a movie? I'm actually writing in a column about that as we speak. Oh, um, it's a terrible thing. And your mother, yeah. your mother's house, that's how it looks, no matter what you do to the TV. Well, yeah, well, you learn. I basically go into motel rooms and bars, and I, I, I change the setting. So. <laughs> What what is it about that? It makes it look like it's um, like you're on the set, or it's like all looks like a soap opera or something. Weird. It is called the soap opera effect. It's also called motion smoothing, and it's basically um, movies are traditionally projected at 24 frames per second. Um, video meaning your nightly newscast, your your football games, soap operas are uh, you know collect images at a higher rate. And the higher rate makes it hotter, makes it look more live. Um, what your TV does is computationally um, invent frames to go between the frames, the, the 24 frames. So it will, because it thinks that's what people want, but it does make Casablanca look like this ghoulish, um, you know, highly lit aberration that's not a movie. Yeah, it takes the cinema out of the cinema somehow. Correct. And you can turn it off and... Um, Martin Scorsese and other people have 
basically bullied the TV manufacturers into uh, adding a setting now called filmmaker mode. And if you buy a new movie, new TV set from any of the major brands, they will have filmmaker mode that basically turns that off. Oh, that's good because in the past, I know you have to like go deep into the, yeah. the settings of your TV and. Oh, they hide it. They hide it and they, and they use different names. Every brand has a different name for it. It's evil. It's evil. <laughs> well, um, I saw the Fablemans. Have you? Yes. Yes. What, what, what were your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I, I like it immensely. Um, I, I've always been a fan of Steven Spielberg. He is, he, he's the mainstream. He's, our best mainstream filmmaker. He is really almost like proof of the, of the, uh, of the form. Um, you know, when you watch one of his movies, you're going to be in good hands narratively film in terms of filmmaking. Um, and, and this, I really am touched by the fact that he's finally sort of gone into his past with the help of Tony Kushner, who's written a tremendous script. Um, and is telling his story basically which is, I think, a resonant story for a lot of people of his generation and other generations, which is diving into media in a, in a, in one, as a youth in one sense to avoid all the crap that's going on in your home. Um, you know, your parents are divorcing. Go out to the backyard and get your friends and make a super eight epic World War II movie. And if that turns you into one of the great directors, fine. There were some wonderful performances in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite, uh, Judd Hirsch walks in and has 10 minutes in that movie and just pockets it. And, you know, he owns those 10 minutes like so completely that it's really delightful. David Lynch has about two minutes, but it's also That's right. That's right. Um, and I almost don't want to spoil it for people who, uh, you know, so close your ears, but he, he's cast really in a cameo toward the end as, as John Ford, which is you would think. Why would you cast David Lynch as John Ford? But it works perfectly. He's perfectly. Does a fabulous John Ford, yeah. And Michelle Williams, I think she may win an Oscar, do you think? I think she's um, certainly going to get nominated. Um, I, The one, it's not an issue I have with the movie. I feel, I wonder if that movie, and this would be true of anybody making a movie about their own parents. I wonder if how clearly that movie sees the real, um, you know, Spielberg's mom, uh, <laughs> because I mean, it looks like you're dealing with somebody who's pretty bipolar, um, and is, you know, really at times in her life, quite troubled. Um, and then, you know, I sort of snarkily referred to it in my review as, as she comes across as, as a manic pixie dream mom. Um, <laughs> And it's a tremendously affectionate and understanding portrait, but I also wonder if there were darker shades that didn't make it into the movie. Yeah, I'm sure there were. I mean, actually, one of the, the, the complaints that I have about every movie that I see that's been made in the 21st century uh, is that they're, they're too long. Movies are much mm. longer than they used to be. And I know you're a fan of older movies as well. Yes, um, is, does that bother you? I mean, does every movie seem 28 minutes too long or? You know, it, it always comes down to, does the movie hold its weight? You know, does the movie hold its length? And, you know, you go see something like, I don't know, Dune, you know, which I enjoyed. Um, and I actually thought, you know, it's an epic story. It's based on a sci-fi epic. It's well done. It holds its length. Um, whereas another movie and, um, I'm trying to think of something that has come out. Um, what about Tar? Have you seen Tar? Tar, I think, 
Or it's such an idiosyncratic animal, I almost don't want to hold it. But, but I'm thinking of something like, I don't know, white noise um, or uh, um, Armageddon time. Uh, these are recent sort of high profile, important movies that do feel like they have an act, an extra act too long. Um, in part because length has always equaled importance. Uh, and, you know, other people might feel differently, but we, you can tell in, in a way it's, it's sort of the Harry Cohn bottom test. Instead of his ass itched, then he knew that it was a bad movie, which made Red Skelton apparently say, imagine that the whole world uh, wired to Harry Cohn's ass. <laughs> you know, if you're watching Avengers Endgame and you have to go pee and you get up and you leave and you run into some friends in the lobby and you talk for a couple of minutes and you get more popcorn and then you go back and sit down. We missed a few minutes of the movie. It's okay. Not too much happened in the movie that you, you know, it's mostly fighting. But if you miss a few minutes of Casablanca, then you didn't see Casablanca. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, my experience with the superhero movies is that they are extended bouts of fighting with compressed moments of, of plot. You know, so yeah, if you miss what's his name, ending the lives of half the people on the earth, uh, then yeah, you, you, you were out at the wrong time. I mean, you know, imagine, imagine walking out of the, 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 the um, shower scene in Psycho, you come back and you're like, where's Marion Crane? What happened to us? So uh, you, you also talk in your uh, Substack column, Tiber, a Tiber's watch list, it's called, um, about <laughs> things that are on TV as well. So the, the line between television and movies isn't what it used to be either. Not at all. Not at all. You, you remember when TV was kind of where movie stars went to die, you know, or went to have their retirement? You yeah. know, Fred McMurray and all my three sons basically meant, okay, my film career is over. Um, and I'm going to take, take a nice little residual check. Um, and that obviously started changing really in, in, um, in the cable years when HBO started doing original programming. And I think once the, the Sopranos was kind of the watershed. Um, and with the rise of streaming, and the streaming platforms and all the studios um, having wanting to have their own streaming platform, which is a terribly confusing um, situation, I think, for a lot of viewers. Um, yeah, what's this on? What's on what now? Where, how do you? Put it? Yeah. Oh, it's it's it's, it's deeply confusing, and there's going to have to be a consolidation. But for the for the um, content community, for the entertainment community, it's been it's been great. If you're a writer, if you're a director, if you're you know a, a crew member. Um, it's been a, a golden era. You're working a ton. And for viewers, um, the quality has been remarkably high. And, I, you know, as somebody who has spent most of his career and life uh, watching and writing about films, two-hour films, you know, that, that format, um, I feel that they're actually sort of falling out of, out of use, falling into disuse, in part because there's so much series content serial content and so much of it is strong um and i don't expect this to last there's also already signs that that companies are pulling back um but your time is taken up watching series to uh, to go and sit down with a movie um and i find that as i'm writing my newsletter the substack uh that i'm writing primarily about movies and people are primarily talking about series, you know, White Lotus, The Bear, you know, whatever they're watching. Um, so can both coexist? I, I actually think the pandemic exacerbated the situation because you're stuck at home. You're feeling pretty panicky about 
the pandemic or whatever else is going on down in Washington or wherever you want. You don't want to have to pick. There's there's an anxiety about having to pick a new movie, a new something to watch every night. If you're watching a series, you can just, well, we'll just watch the next episode. We're talking about how movies are are a little too long. What about um, those limited series? Do you ever find when you're watching one that you think, oh, this episode, episode four of eight, they could have done away with, or they could have made it a mm-hmm. sit- Yeah, yeah, that, it's true. I, I noticed there were some episodes of like the re- most recent White Lotus season where I felt like they were treading water a little bit. Yeah, in it's the middle there. Do you watch any network television, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox? Not really. Not really. Um, I do not watch cable TV news. I'm a religious avoider of TV cable news. Um, and I, you know, I will check out like, um, uh, what's the what, Abbott Elementary? What's the, the show? Yes, Abbott Elementary. Yeah. yeah, I've watched a couple of episodes. It's very nice. I know it's there. I can go back to it, but I am not a regular viewer of, of um, network TV. Uh, in, in part because of what I do, I'm very busy focusing on film. So you don't watch NCIS, Bakersfield, or whatever they have? No, no, I don't. Uh, you know, which I guess puts me in the minority of most Americans. But you know, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder about that, if people are watching network TV very much. Oh, I think they are. I think I think that I, I think still the, a majority of people um, are watching network TV and whatever is on their cable system. You know, they'll see HBO and, you know, um, but I think that a lot of the new streaming platforms, um, all the Peacocks and Paramount Pluses and HBO Maxes, and uh, they are, it's a very confusing scenario, I think, for average viewers, especially average older viewers. And um, I think that um, they are getting a slice. They're each getting a slice. And like I said, I think that, uh, that that's going to have to change, um, that there's gonna be some consolidation. We'll end up with three networks again. Well, I appreciate all of that, Ty Burr. And his newsletter, people, on Substack is called Ty Burr's Watch List. Ty Burr, thanks for stopping by. Sure, thank you. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program, and we'll come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.